Wildcat crime listeners should be aware that this episode contains descriptions of murder, suicide, and gun violence, and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Wildcat Crime, the monthly podcast dedicated to taking a closer look at some of the most infamous crimes to occur at the University of Arizona and within the Wildcat community, brought to you by the Daily Wildcat and Camp Student Radio. My name is Vanessa Ontiveros, and I'll be your host. I want you to think back to where you were in life in 2002. Maybe you were watching Star Wars Attack of the Clones and being thoroughly disappointed. Maybe you were tearing up as Halle Berry became the first black actress to win the Oscar for Best Actress. Maybe you were three years old and starting preschool, like the host of a certain podcast who shall remain nameless. Now, I want you to think of how much has changed since then. I also want you to think of how much hasn't. On October 28, 2002, a lot changed in just five minutes at the University of Arizona College of Nursing. Five minutes. That's all the time it took for gunman Robert Flores Jr. to murder Robin Rogers, Barbara Monroe, and Cheryl McGathick, all three professors in the College of Nursing, before killing himself. In 2018, this is a sadly familiar story. But in 2002, the term campus shooting had not yet really entered the national consciousness in the way it has today. The Columbine High School massacre, often considered the first modern campus shooting, had occurred just three years before. The Virginia Tech shooting, which left 33 people dead, including the gunman, took place in 2007. Today, we're going to talk about what happened on that day in late October. We'll talk about how the campus responded to the tragedy. We'll also take an in-depth look at the victims, the lives lost, as well as the gunmen. And through the lens of 2018, a year with almost daily mass shootings, we'll look at what's changed and what hasn't since the 2002 shooting at the UA College of Nursing. background before we get into what exactly happened on the morning of October 28, 2002. Robert Flores Jr. was enrolled as a student in the College of Nursing studying to become a registered nurse. However, he was not doing well in school. In fact, he was failing his classes, including one taught by Barbara Monroe. Police would later discover that Flores had stockpiled weapons, including the five handguns he brought with him to campus that day. On the day of the shooting, rumors circulated that he may have planted explosives on campus due to the presence of bomb-sniffing dogs. However, no evidence of this was ever found. 
Investigators would later determine that he chose his victims in advance. According to a timeline of events compiled by Ryan Gabrielson for the Daily Wildcat that was published the day after the shooting, Flores walked into Robin Rogers' office on the second floor of the College of Nursing at approximately 8.30 a.m. There, he shot her dead. It is unknown if he said or did anything more specific than that. However, much more has been reported on the next two murders since they occurred in front of a classroom filled with nursing students. Reports from inside the classroom do vary, which is not surprising given what happened next. At approximately 8.53 a.m., Flores entered the lecture hall on the fourth floor of the building. Inside the hall, students were taking a midterm for a critical care class. When Flores entered the room, he sought out his second victim, Barbara Monroe. He reportedly spoke with her briefly. Right before killing her, students in the classroom have reported that he asked, Are you ready to meet your maker? He fired several shots into her in front of the class, which caused students to duck for cover. He then went to the back of the classroom and taunted Cheryl McGaffick, who was noted for her religious devotion and beliefs, reportedly saying he was going to teach her a lesson in spirituality. Then he fatally shot her. According to students inside the classroom at the time, after this, Flores called out to two students he knew in the room and told them to leave, before yelling at everyone to get out. Students rushed out. After they left, Flores shot himself. According to the timeline, a student in a nearby classroom called 911 at 9.37 a.m. University of Arizona Police Department officers arrived on scene at 8.40 a.m. Many Tucson Police Department officers were training nearby in Himmel Park. They arrived, along with others, at 8.48 a.m. And at 8.54 a.m., Flores was confirmed dead. Meanwhile, SWAT teams worked to evacuate the College of Nursing, College of Pharmacy, Life Sciences North, and Basic Sciences, all of which are north of Speedway Boulevard. The University Medical Center was also closed to new patients and visitors, according to an article from UA News written by Jeff Harrison entitled, Shooting Leaves Three Faculty, Suspect, Dead. So those are the events that happened at the College of Nursing on October 28, 2002. We know these things from news reports after the fact. I'll talk about what the response from the rest of campus was in the hours and days after the shooting in a moment. But first, a little more about that morning. Now, going into this podcast, I knew I would be able to tell a more complete story by talking to survivors of the shooting, to students who were in the classroom. I reached out to the College of Nursing, asking if it would be possible for them to put me in contact with alumni or faculty who had been at the school during the time. And they, very politely, declined my request, saying that in recent years, most survivors had said they wanted to move on from that day. And I completely understood. For many of them, it was probably one of the worst days of their lives. And I knew that there were enough existing articles and interviews with survivors of the shooting that I could still read first-hand accounts and put them in this podcast. One College of Nursing faculty member did respond to my request. Her name is Lisa Kaiser. She's a senior lecturer in the college. 
I sought her out because she had previously given presentations and panel discussions on the relationship between nursing as a profession and the epidemic of gun violence. It's one of her specialties. So I knew going into the interview that she would be able to answer questions I had on how such a caring profession intersects with such a violent phenomenon. However, about two minutes into the interview, she told me this. Um, so there's a part of the story that I, I didn't want to tell you beforehand yeah. <laughs> because it's so much better to have a conversation in person about it. Yeah. So I actually was a student here. Um, I got my nursing degree here. I graduated in 2003. I was in the classroom when my professors were shot at the University of Arizona shootings. Okay. I'm going to be completely candid here. I did not know how to react. I'd been researching this event for three weeks, but when she told me she was a survivor of this shooting, suddenly it all felt very, very real in a way that this 16-year-old tragedy hadn't before. I don't think I'd really grasped it. I asked Lisa if she felt comfortable talking about her experience that day, and she said she did. Here's what she remembers and what she thinks of when she thinks of that day. It's been 16 years since the shooting. I think the saddest thing for me is at that time, it wasn't as common. And to see how our society has changed in these 16 years not for the better around gun violence is very painful. Um, when I remember what happened 16 years ago, what I remember first and foremost is that that people were killed that deserve to live. That there's this understanding when there are these shootings that, that it is totally out of context. That for us, we were taking a midterm. Um, one of my fellow classmates who was failing uh, came in and he killed two of our professors. And he had killed a third professor before he came into the classroom during our exam. And then he killed himself. It was beyond horrific. And, and to remember is to remember to say those are the lives that, we, that we're trying to save every time. These good, good lives, these people who deserve to live, who did nothing wrong. And in fact, did everything right. Same thing when you look at the Pittsburgh shooting. You know, you look at who was killed. Um, you look at who was killed at Charleston. You look at who was killed at the Kroger grocery store. I'm sure if we looked at who was killed in the bar, it's that this isn't a war zone. Um, this isn't where you expect people to be killed. So we have to get at what are the dynamics around gun violence that we can change. When I think of them, when I think of Cheryl McGaffick, Barbara Monroe, Robin Rogers, they were incredible nurses. And they were just... Because nurses as a whole, you're going to hear me say this, we're, we're just the best people ever. We love being nurses. But what I feel is I felt sad and I still feel sad for the, the quality, the, the depth and breadth of their lives that was lost. You know, the work that they could do and the families and their friends and the community. Um, that is so unjust. I've been working as a reporter for about a year and a half now. Not a very long time, but I want to say that I have never truly listened more to an interview subject than I did with Lisa in her office. 
At the end of the interview, after I had stopped recording, Lisa told me that we were sitting in Barbara's old office, which Lisa, her student who is helping train a new generation of nurses, now occupies today. I spoke with other former students who attended UA in 2002, all of whom wrote for the Daily Wildcat at the time, about what campus was like that day. October 28th was a disturbingly busy day for UAPD. That morning, there was a dangerous situation at McHale Center, sometimes referred to as a riot. In the days before Zona Zoo, students used to camp out overnight in order to try to get a half-season worth of basketball tickets. They'd have their names entered into a lottery-like system, and then just hope for the best. However, as the opening of the box office drew closer, students started getting restless. Some started pushing and shoving, trying to get closer to the office. UAPD arrived to break it up. Brett Farah, director of UA Student Media and a junior in 2002, was one of the students trying to get tickets that morning. Here's what he remembers from after the police broke up the riot. And I remember um, them breaking it up and then kind of disappearing after a little while. We hung around for a while, and they got out of there fast. I don't remember exactly how the timelines meshed, so I, I might get some of this wrong. Um, it was that long ago, but um, but it, was, it wasn't out of the ordinary, but it was just interesting. Wow, they, they, they took off and left. As we know now, they were leaving to go respond to the shooting that had just taken place north of Speedway. James Kelly was also a student during this time. Nowadays, he works as a sports reporter for Verde Valley Newspapers. In 2002, he was working at the Daily Wildcat and helped cover the shooting. This is how he first learned about what was going on. And as I was walking to Mikhail, um, um, she called again and my editor, um, Cindy, um, she called again and she um, said that there was a, they heard there was a shooting over at the nursing school and if I could go down there and check it out. Um, I walked down there um, and at that point there wasn't that many people, but throughout the day uh, there wasn't that many there wasn't that many media, and throughout the day, like more and more came. Like it would be like the other report, other newspaper reports would come, and then like the local news would come, and then like um, CNN and whatnot came after that. But throughout the day, um, I would I went, went left, went back, went to class, and I came back, and um, like more and more people started coming, and so it was kind of like just kind of building up. But we didn't really know what was going on because it happened in the morning, and they had kind of kept us pretty far away from nursing school, like the police lines, I mean. Ryan Gabrielson, who now works as a reporter at ProPublica, was north of Speedway Boulevard when he started hearing reports. So the morning of the shooting, uh, I was on Catran going to, I, I had a different job entirely. I was uh, doing some like, uh, uh, communications type work uh, for a program at the medical school uh, with Dr. Marlis Witte when uh, word got out that the Catran was being redirected. We weren't going to our normal drop-off place uh, because something had happened at the nursing school. And sort of word started rumbling around, you know, people started getting uh, uh, messages one way or the other that there had been something awful happening at the nursing school uh, and word of a shooting. And so once we got off, we started talking to people around and heard that there, there had been uh, a, sh a shooting with casualties. Though he was not working officially at the Wildcat in 2002, Ryan, along with James and many other student reporters, got to work trying to figure out what had happened that day. 
everybody was focused. There, it was, the rouge room was filled, but everybody was. Uh, there was no like stepping on each other's toes. We were. It was a. It was a really great collaborative uh, uh, environment, and everybody was excited. The wrong word, but energized around trying to figure out what what had happened and and documenting it for the U of A community. In 2002, the Daily Wildcat was operating out of the Esquire building, which is north of Speedway Boulevard, so they were relatively close to the shooting. Those Daily Wildcat articles were invaluable sources for me while researching this podcast. They're largely how I learned what happened in the days after the shooting. Classes at the College of Pharmacy, College of Medicine, and Life Sciences North resumed the next day after having been evacuated on October 28th. Classes at the College of Nursing stopped for a week, before continuing the following Monday, November 4th. The night of the shooting, there was a candlelit vigil in front of the Swede Johnson building for the victims. Inside the building, grief counselors were available for students and staff. A memorial for Robin Rogers, Barbara Monroe, and Shell McGaffick emerged outside the College of Nursing. Mourners left flowers, candles, and other objects in remembrance. According to a Daily Wildcat article by Stephanie Schwartz entitled, Campus Community, Families Celebrate Lost Professors' Lives, community members, including many nursing students, attached purple ribbons to themselves when they attended the tribute. Purple was Robin's favorite color. People told stories about Robin Rogers, Barbara Monroe, and Cheryl McGaffick as they moved towards healing after the tragedy. As I said before, most of the people I spoke to for this podcast worked at the Daily Wildcat during this time. So, by virtue of being student journalists, they were particularly knowledgeable about what was going on at the College of Nursing, the shooting, and the aftermath. However, two of the people I talked to mentioned that, while this very much had an immediate impact on graduate and professional students, students who mostly spent time south of Speedway Boulevard i.e. the undergraduates, generally seemed to get the effects less. As far as I could find, classes on main campus were not even canceled. Here's what Brett had to say about the divide in student reactions. Um, I do also remember discussions, um, not necessarily related to the journalism, but that were really fascinating about what would this have been like if it wasn't this isn't meant to minimize it by any stretch. I mean, people lost their lives, so I, I don't ever want it to come off that way. Um, but how much crazier of a day would that have been? Because the campus still, even though some stuff was shut down and, and you know, it, it things still went on. And part of that's because it was north of Speedway. But if that happened in social sciences or if that happened in Harville or happened in Koffler or one of these other buildings on campus that are right in the dead center, would that have had a different effect? And obviously everything north of Speedway was, you know, uh, completely up, uh, upended. But um, but the, the news coverage, the law enforcement, everything that connected to it was able to sort of stay up there. And, and that's part of it that I remember. And it was interesting where we were located because we weren't far from that. We could hear it and see it. And, you know, it was we're talking Campbell to Park, which isn't right there, but it's close enough that uh, that we could we could actually walk outside and still have a good feeling of that and see the helicopters overhead and all that stuff. But over here on the main part of campus, it wasn't like things weren't functioning. If that happened in the dead center of campus, it would have been a really fascinating, different um, situation, I think, for this for this school. But Brett also made it clear that this is not to say undergraduate students were not affected or that main campus did not respond to the tragedy. In fact, 
I was shocked by how much the response to the shooting in 2002 mirrored what happens today after a mass shooting. The Daily Wildcat published letters for days after the shooting. In them, students and community members wrote in and stated their, often polar opposite, beliefs about how the shooting was handled. There were students who argued for stronger gun control, and others who said gun control supporters were wrong and that campus weapons bans did not work. One student, named Benjamin Tanner, argued that, quote, perhaps they, the victims, would have carried handguns for protection were it not for the ban. Sound familiar? There were more. Most of the letters on gun control read like a modern-day Twitter fight, with everyone trying to show how smart they are, and everyone firmly convinced that their side is the right one. And if you think that conspiracy theories about false flags and fake shootings are a new thing, you'd be wrong. Unfortunately. One agricultural technology management senior wrote to the Wildcats saying, quote, I refuse to believe that the College of Nursing shooting actually happened. Guns aren't allowed on campus. End quote. Obviously, views like this are horribly disrespectful to the victims, Robin Rogers, Barbara Monroe, and Cheryl McGaffick. And now, it's about time that I spoke more about these women in detail. There is an unfortunate tendency in crime reporting to focus heavily on the assailant, the shooter, the killer. They carry with them a sense of morbid fascination. And look, I understand that. And we will discuss Robert Flores Jr. later in the episode. But for right now, I want to talk about each of the three victims. The hardworking, loving, kind women who dedicated their sadly short lives to helping others. Robin Rogers... Barbara Monroe, and Cheryl McGaffick. Robin Rogers was the first person killed in the shooting. She was a clinical assistant nursing professor during her time at UA, who taught many classes but specialized in pediatric care. Now, there is another tendency in crime reporting that I want to avoid. Some reports will focus solely and completely on the tragic ways the victims in these stories are killed. And I don't want to fall into that trap. Don't get me wrong. The murder of Robin Rogers was a tragedy, but that's not all her life was. From every report I've read of her, Robin Rogers was a beautiful person who lived a life full of meaning. Like many nurses, she exhibited a passion for helping others, including her country. Before becoming a nursing professor, she served as a pediatric nurse practitioner in the United States Air Force for 19 years. That's as long as I've been alive. She achieved the rank of lieutenant colonel. She initially earned her bachelor's of science in nursing from Loma Linda University in 1973 and her master's of science in nursing from the University of Texas San Antonio in 1992 before coming to the UA to teach in the College of Nursing in 1996. Her work focused largely on pediatric and neonatal care, often focusing on high-risk patients. She was also active religiously, She belonged to the Faith Lutheran Church. On November 4th, her services were held at that same church where she led Bible study group and helped with the songs for worship. More than 250 people attended the service. She was 50 at the time of her death. Brief articles memorializing each of the victims were published in the Daily Wildcat on October 30th, two days after the shooting. Nate Buchik and James Kelly wrote the one for Robin. 
In it, they quoted Robin's husband, Philip Rogers. When she died, Robin left behind Philip, as well as two twin children, John and Rachel, who were both 21 at the time of their mother's murder. Just days after losing his wife, Philip was quoted as saying, quote, The memory I want for my wife is that she was a kind, caring person, not only as part of the nursing profession, but in personal life as well. She was great at her job, both when she was in the Air Force and as an instructor. She was also a great wife and a great mother. We'll miss her greatly. The second victim was Barbara Monroe, who was 45 at the time of her death. Barbara joined UA in the College of Nursing as a clinical assistant professor and critical care nurse educator just one year before the 2002 shooting. But what a mark she made in that time. From what I've read, Barbara was the kind of professor every student wishes for. She was said to be completely devoted to her students. She had a sense of humor and wit, a bright personality and a large circle of friends, a love for nursing and educating. According to the UA Women's Plaza of Honor website, she grew up reading books on nursing and was reportedly utterly fascinated by them. She even collected vintage nursing equipment. You know those people who find what they love, their passion, and just go for it and totally make it work? That's what Barbara sounds like to me. She earned her Bachelor's of Science in Nursing from Mankato State University in 1980 and her Master's of Science in Nursing from Arizona State University in 1993. And from there, she did what she seemed to love. Nursing, teaching, helping others. A statement from the Arizona Health Sciences Center after the shooting called Barbara, quote, a role model for other clinical faculty. I'd call her a role model in real life as well based on something I read on the memorial website for her, barbamonroe.com. Her brother, Alan Story, wrote a Minnesota eulogy for his sister in which he listed Barb's rules for life. I'll read them now. Do something to embarrass yourself. Laugh. Laugh at yourself. Smile more. Say hello. Be more tolerant. Care more about others, less about yourself. Say kind things about others. Teach. It's not restricted to the classroom. Live life to the fullest. Find a lot of time to play. Help someone without conditions. Be yourself. Allow others to do the same. Carry on. Cheryl McGaffick was a lifelong wildcat and an extremely empathetic person from what I've read of her. She earned both her Bachelor's of Science and Ph.D. in Nursing at the UA before joining the faculty as a clinical associate professor. Throughout her career, she worked with patients near the end of their lives. She taught her students to do the same, teaching classes on critical care and nursing ethics. She even created her own class on death and dying, drawing upon different areas of culture and ethics. Cheryl was also on the faculty at the College of Medicine's AIDS Education Project and was named Volunteer of the Year for the Tucson AIDS Project Client Services. She seemed to take comfort in comforting others. Cheryl also exhibited a deep spirituality. She volunteered as a chaplain for dying patients and their families at the University Medical Center. She maintained an active spiritual life, organizing pastoral groups. She worked to combine two of her specialties, nursing and spirituality, by teaching others to care for vulnerable people. According to the memorial written for her in the Daily Wildcat by Nate Buchik, 
Cheryl was considering going back to school to get her master's in divinity or becoming an Episcopal chaplain. After Cheryl's death at age 44, her husband, Walter McGaffick, told Irene Shaw of the now-defunct Tucson Citizen newspaper that he continued to talk to her, even after she was no longer with him. He'd tell her about his day, how he was grooming their dog, anything at all. He also wrote a letter to the Daily Wildcat entitled, The Life of Cheryl McGaffick Characterized by Spirituality. I'm going to read an excerpt from it now. Cheryl's academic and educational accomplishments were many, and she was involved with numerous professional, community, and social organizations. But those accolades were not what mattered most to her. The defining aspects of Cheryl's life were her connection to God and her relationship with people. She felt a profound interconnectedness to her family and friends, to her students and colleagues. This was the center of her personal view of life, the essence of her spirituality. End quote. Further in the letter he wrote, The circumstances of Cheryl's death might seem a mockery of her passionate spirituality. This is not the case. Her belief in God and her love for us were not and never could be taken from her. Still, she has so suddenly been taken from us. We miss her. End quote. And now we reach the fourth death in the UA College of Nursing that day, gunman Robert Flores, Jr. I'm going to be totally honest here. I was dreading researching this man, and now I am dreading talking about him. I knew what I was getting into when I started this podcast, but there's not a great way to handle covering killers. Of course, some people, myself included, want to know their motive, what drove them to kill. But there has to be a balance between studying a killer and glorifying their actions. Oftentimes, people say that killers do what they do for the attention. So in discussing Robert Flores Jr., am I just giving this man what he wants? But without an in-depth look at him and his life, this would probably be an incomplete story. I really was not sure if I was going to talk about him in detail at all on this podcast until I spoke with Lisa Kaiser, and she said something that forced me to re-examine my thinking. We don't talk about the assailants enough. And I think that, in fact, has made the problem worse. We tend to demonize them, and in some ways, understandably so. You do this horrific act, you take away lives, um, you kill people. You'll hear us in the gun violence prevention movement, we don't talk about they were lost or you taken away. No, you killed people, right? Because if you don't tell the truth about how horrible it is, then you can't solve the problem. So with that in mind, here we go. Let's look at Robert Flores, Jr., most brief summaries of the shootings will say that he was a disgruntled nursing student who killed his professors because he was flunking out. And that's not inaccurate. But it's also not the whole story. He was 41 in October 2002. During his life, he served in the army in the Persian Gulf War. He also served in Germany and South Korea, where he trained to be a sniper according to a New York Times article by John Broder entitled Arizona Gunman Chose Victims in Advance, which gave a lot of detail about Flores' life before the shooting, but does not really discuss his selecting of his victims. Robin Rogers, Barbara Monroe, and Cheryl McGaffick are mentioned only twice. The article stated that the Army did not reveal Flores' discharge status, so that's something we don't know. 
He had an ex-wife and two children. The kids, who were adolescents at the time of the shooting, used to visit him during the summers, according to a Daily Wildcat article written by Rebecca Jampole entitled Reports of Gunman's Character Conflict. The article mentioned that Flores' neighbors and landlord were shocked to hear what he did. He seemed quiet, like he was doing well, a nice guy, I never thought. We've all heard it. His classmates, on the other hand, noted that Flores seemed off. Some described him as mouthy or weird. One recalled him bragging about having a concealed carry license. Lisa Kaiser spoke a bit about him during our interview. Here's what she said. I think one of the most painful things for us is that this was a nursing student in our building. It was a classmate, and then for the faculty and the staff here, this was a student that they were taking care of. It wasn't, again, that we didn't see some warning signs. It's that we didn't have the tools at that time to really address it effectively. One of the things that Lisa said stood out to her was that there were so many warning signs that Robert Flores Jr. was dangerous. As I said earlier, his classmates were wary of him. And according to a Daily Wildcat article by Nate Buchik entitled, Two Slain Professors Feared Flores, his instructors also knew he posed a threat. Robin Rogers had previously told her family that the failing student caused her to be fearful. She even reportedly asked members of her church to pray for her safety. Cheryl McGaffick also made her fear of Flores known to her family. According to John Broder's article in the New York Times entitled, Student Kills Three Instructors and Himself at University of Arizona, Cheryl told her husband that she felt threatened by Flores, but she never made a report because it wouldn't do any good. Two other faculty members had made a report concerning Flores possibly posing a danger to himself and others in April of 2001. However, it doesn't seem like anything was done about it. This, too, is a familiar story to us in 2018. How many times have we heard a shooting could have been stopped if we'd paid attention to signs? I asked Lisa, what should be done if someone thinks a person in their life may turn to gun violence? Here's what she said. By all means, take it seriously. Um, again, when you look at social media, especially, you know, if people are posting things, there are whole campaigns, like after the shootings at Sandy Hook, they've done some really excellent work. Um, we don't talk enough about young people. So mass shootings, understandably so, I think have us all kind of gripped with this horror of like what's happening in our society. But the reality is most of the gun violence deaths are suicides. And so when you look at what's killing young people, hang in there with me, ages 10, 10 to 24, the number two and number three causes of death of young people are suicide and homicide. We have got to get out and what's going on in terms of being a violent society. And harm to self, so, you know, you have a friend, either way, whether you're turning it inward or you're turning it outward, if there are any signs you take it seriously, you go to people who can help. Um, we have crisis hotlines. Um, there are national crisis hotlines you can call. We certainly have the mental health crisis hotlines. Here in Tucson, you can call and you can make an anonymous call and they can go out and do a visit of concern and assess whether the person is potentially a harm to self or harm to others. There are some killers who we will never really know why they did what they did. Robert Flores Jr. is not like that. 
Before the shooting, he sent the Arizona Daily Star a 22-page letter, though the word manifesto might be more accurate. He started it off with, quote, Greetings from the dead. The rest of the letter gives us a bit more insight into Flores' mind in the weeks before the tragedy at the College of Nursing. He considered the shooting to be a reckoning. According to a CBS News article by Jaime Olguin entitled Eerie Letter from University Killer, he seemed to believe that killing his professors was not an act of revenge, but rather a way to challenge their hubris. His words, not mine. He also wrote about his life, his failed marriage, his medical troubles, his struggles in school, and none of those things justify what he did, at least not to a reasonable person. But they are what was going through the head of a deeply unwell man when he was making the decision to murder three innocent professors. I have not read the entire letter, just brief quotes that were included in the CBS News article. I really didn't want to read it. And I could not find a copy online, though honestly, I didn't look very hard. I'm certain there is a copy out there. I hope this isn't the case, but in my head, I can't help but picture some other would-be shooter reading it and getting the wrong ideas, glorifying Robert Flores Jr. That's one of the potential dangers of releasing writings like this. When the Arizona Daily Star received the letter, they had to make the decision to publish it or not. Let's just say I don't envy them. On one hand, it does have news value and can help people asking the question of why would he do it get his answer, if not the answer. But it's also disturbing and might take attention away from the victims. What the star ultimately decided to do was not print the letter. However, what they did print in their newspaper was that people who were interested in reading the letter could go online. Now, publishing the letter online meant something very different in 2002 than it does in 2018. Newspapers and television were still the primary platforms where people got their news. And in order to access the letter, people had to go through multiple links in order to get the actual text of it. In other words, people could make the active decision to seek out the letter rather than having it shoved in their faces. Here's Brett with a little more information on that decision. Now, Brett was not working at the Daily Star at the time, nor was he in that newsroom, but he is very in touch with the Tucson journalism scene today. Well, it's, it's interesting because from what I remember, and I, again, I wasn't part of the Star, but I remember it from as a reader and, and analyzing and, and even in journalism classes talking about it. Um, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the decision of how to cover this being able to be made along the fly without having to worry about what's up online right now, what are we doing? Like stories were up and photos were up, but again, it was base level. And then when something was confirmed, it was updated and so forth. There wasn't this constant need to continue to, oh, we got another story. Let's put it up in 25 minutes. Like some stuff was purposefully held for print because that's how it happened. And I'm speaking of the Wildcat right now. I think the star had both the timing made it lucky, but also I think the star had really strong, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I would say, I, I, I guess 
the star leadership, from my perspective, in hindsight, I think made re- a really good decision with how they presented it. Because basically back then, even though the websites existed and were a big deal, if you, ha- you, you were giving someone the conscious ability to make four or five clicks before they got to something instead of just putting blasting it front page it's kind of what we say about and and back then you know it was a different mindset as far as printing the the mugshot and name of the perpetrator um but it's that kind of discussion today where people are making the argument that we shouldn't be putting this info right out there for everyone to see right now because it's masking over who the victims are or what the situation actually was and and so in that same context they were able to actually have an outlet that could run this manifesto because it was long, it was no way it was ever going to run in print, and allow readers to make a conscious decision because the majority of their readership, at least in theory, was still coming from print. The majority of their dedicated readership was still coming from print. And so timing, it was a perfect storm of how the internet was a complement to the print newspaper, Um, whereas we've sort of flipped the other way to some extent. Something else that Brett said in a different conversation we had really stuck out to me. He said, in 2018, publishing this letter wouldn't even be a decision we get to make. One way or another, that letter would end up online. And once it's out there, it's not coming back. It's out of your control. That made me think about how much has changed since 2002. Campus shootings, mass shootings, gun violence, all of these terms are connected to our lives now and to this tragedy. And all of them can be tricky to identify. Campus shootings tend to be pretty clear, though the image we might have of a troubled teenager bringing a gun to school to inflict terror on his classmates really does not fit what happened at the UA College of Nursing necessarily. No students were shot that day other than the 41-year-old Flores. From what I could find, there were six shootings on school campuses in 2002, including the one at UA. Half of them resulted in no deaths. The shooting at UA had the most deaths, with four total. There was an eerily similar incident involving a struggling student killing a professor and classmates that happened at the Appalachian School of Law in January of 2002. The very next day, after Robert Flores Jr. killed three professors at UA, another campus shooting occurred at a New Jersey high school, though luckily no one was killed. As of November 15, 2018, which is when I'm recording this, There have been 66 documented school shootings in America, including the Mary Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Parkland, Florida, where 17 people were killed, the highest this year. So far. I asked all of the people I interviewed for this podcast what they thought had changed since 2002, and by far the most common and most pressing answer was just how often these events seem to occur, how commonplace they've become, and how much we've become almost used to them, as horrible as that is to think of. Here's what Brett had to say about what's changed. But this one, today, in, in terms of today's standards of, of shootings, both on campus or mass shootings or however you want to look at it, was small, which is sad to say. It doesn't mean inconsequential by any stretch. But, um, but to think back then, it was a large enough, quote unquote, event that it led the news for a couple of days, which is probably how it should be. At the same time, it, uh, I would be shocked if, if that was the same case today. I think we'd get a blip on the national news for a few minutes and then it'd go away. But what's interesting is that some people felt the exact same way that we move on from tragedy too quickly back in 2002. 
Daniel Kutcher was a columnist for The Wild Cat in 2002. He was a senior creative writing major at the time. He wrote a column that was published Friday, November 1st, entitled, UA Response to Murders is Terrifying. In it, he discussed how quickly people seemed to move on. I'll read a paragraph from it. Quote, These types of things hit us hard at first, then seem to drop almost entirely out of our consciousness. We've become numb, first to the latest tragedy, then to tragedy in general. Eventually, we barely bat an eyelash at the news of school shootings or burning towers crashing to the ground. We'd just rather not think about it. But we should, and think hard. End quote. I've read countless Facebook posts from friends of mine who feel the exact same way in 2018 that Daniel felt in 2002. Sixteen years of shootings, and we're still having the same conversations. Another phrase that we all know in 2018 is mass shooting. After the Sandy Hook shooting, Congress defined a mass shooting as having three or more dead victims. I've seen other sources use four. And it's unclear if a suicide adds to the official body count. So, depending on which definition you use, the 2002 nursing school shooting, in which three innocent lives were lost, plus the gunman committing suicide, may or may not even qualify. I'll take a moment to state the obvious and say how truly awful it feels to be living in a world where the body count needs to reach a certain number before we get concerned about what happened. Eddie Salaya felt similarly when I interviewed him. Eddie is the engagement editor for the Daily Wildcat. In October, he wrote an article entitled Youth, Guns, and Votes, examining what role gun control would play in the upcoming election. Here's what he had to say about what the attitude towards shooting seems to be in 2018. To me, this has just become the new normal. I knew it was, you know, it's always inevitable. I'm sure some, I mean, I, there was a shooting, three people got killed in Tucson the ne very next day, and it barely even, you know, I think I posted it on my Facebook, it barely even cracked the news. Um, it's just really getting to the point where, uh, there was an earlier, there was uh, an earlier time this year where I think six people died in one in, in Chicago, and I don't think there was any real reaction to it. Um, it's getting to the point where nearly 20, 30 people have to die for it to even dominate one day's worth of news. As of November 12th, which was the most up-to-date data I could find, there have been 309 mass shootings in the U.S. in 2018. The way this podcast works is I spend about a week interviewing people and another week recording and editing. The day I happened to be interviewing Lisa Kaiser was also the morning after the Thousand Oaks shooting, which left 12 people dead in California. I interviewed her at about 10 in the morning on November 8th, and she told me she had not even heard about it yet, a testament to the sheer number of these horrible events. Here's what she said later in the interview about the frequency of massacres in the country in the past few weeks. It's been a bad few weeks. It just feels like something has accelerated and I feel horribly sad about it. And also determined to just say, fine, what are we gonna do about this? Um, I think there's a lot of things we can do. And as someone who's worked on gun violence prevention for a long time, there is this insistence in the gun violence prevention movement that we must do these things. Um, it, when you look at even just the last week, a synagogue 
uh, a yoga studio, a Kroger's grocery store, and now a bar, it cannot be that there is no safe place. We must go back to a time when every place is a safe place um, and that you cannot fear for your life just doing your normal activities of daily living. There's also the larger culture of gun violence as a whole. At this point, gun violence cannot be divorced from American culture. Its prevalence in all our lives, its engulfing effects, are part of what spurred second-year art grad student Martin Kraft to co-curate an interactive exhibit at the UA Center for Creative Photography entitled A Memorial for Past and Potential Gun Victims. In the exhibit, visitors traced photos of people who had lost their lives to gun violence as a way to make them feel a greater connection to the victims. He, like everyone I interviewed, wants to see something done about this culture of gun violence we're living in. I think there, there are some basic, uh, there's basic legislation that the vast majority of Americans agree with that, that would start to reduce gun violence. Uh, universal background checks. You know, people will say, oh, there's gun violence in Chicago, so that means that gun, gun laws don't work in Illinois. But they are ignoring the fact that uh, all of the adjacent states to Illinois have very lax gun laws. People can go to those states and buy guns and, and then bring them into Chicago, and, and then there's gun violence. Uh, and people blame the gun laws. But if you look at kind of other high-income countries that have much lower rates of gun violence and stricter gun laws, I think we see that there is definitely hope for the, the impact of, you know, having common sense uh, gun laws that, that will reduce violence. And uh, I think, you know, another thing is uh, the boyfriend loophole. So if uh, someone commits any kind of domestic abuse, they should obviously not have access to a gun, whether they're married to the person who they've assaulted or are in a relationship or, you know, involved in any capacity. You know, if you commit domestic assault, you should not have access to a gun. But how do you have the energy, the hope, to make a change when you're dealing with these deaths almost every single day? Well, here's what Lisa, as a nurse and as a survivor, had to say about healing after this tragedy, the shooting in 2002, and the positive change she's seen so far. That was the moment I think all of us came out of that having to find a way forward. It was a very, very difficult thing, as you can imagine. And I'm, I'm open and, and available to talk about that in a context of what do you do with your life. And I think when you look at these daily, almost now, shootings, there were 435 mass shootings in the United States last year. Um, for those of us who have lived through that kind of gun violence, there are some of us who found our way to healing was this way that you work to change it so that other people don't have to experience it. And most important, that we stop losing these lives. So when you talk to a nurse, that I'm nurse first and foremost, there's this idea that nursing is all about prevention and wellness. Um, and that for some of us, not just nurses, but it became a way of saying there are very specific things we can do. It does not have to be this way. She said this next part a little later in the interview. The positive change for me, and what's really going to change the gun violence prevention movement, is that survivors have come forward. That is a huge change in the last five years. 
when I first started working with one of the gun violence prevention movements, mm -hmm. they had 25 survivors working with them. Now I think we're over 500 and growing. When you look at Moms Demand Action, they grew after Sandy Hook, it was like moms were done. And not just moms, dads and grandmas and, you know, aunts and uncles. Everybody was just like, I think they have over a million people in their organization. So it's the it's that ability for, for the common citizen to step forward and say this issue is a priority um, that is going to change this. Putting together this podcast, I spoke to a lot of people about a lot of horrible things. Some of the worst things humans can do to each other. And at the end of each interview, my guest and I would leave feeling pretty bummed out. This is heavy stuff that I've been researching for a month and that you've been listening to. It takes a toll. But the interview that I, at least, left actually feeling hopeful after was my talk with Lisa Kaiser, who, as I said before, is a survivor of the 2002 nursing school shooting. I asked her if there was anything she, as a survivor, wanted people to know. And I'll end this podcast today with her words. Just listen. I think for all of us, there's this balance of, of falling back on the data and the statistics and the policy. Um, and the real story is just the humanness of it. Um, this, this huge loss. And... And that's something I would want people to, to appreciate. It's, it's a very deep thing. Um, it doesn't 100% ever go away, 100%, right? And the other day after the shootings in Pittsburgh, when I was um, with my congregation and we were doing the prayers of the people and I started to cry, you know, someone came up to me and they said, it never 100% goes away. And I immediately responded without thinking. I said, that's a good thing. You know, when you look at a survivor, someone is, is carrying with them the story of what should not be and will never be again, right? And, and so when you look at me, it's like, this has been hard. This has not been easy. It has not been easy in this building. Um, for the University of Arizona community, I want to say, sometimes just take a second and look at the College of Nursing and look at what we accomplished. It was not a small thing to recover from a mass shooting inside this building. Uh, many, many people, faculty and staff and students, were determined to turn this place back into a place of healing. Um, the most gratifying thing for me when I came back and started working here was when I walked in here, there was this wave of peace, this understanding that the work we do it as nurses healed this horrible thing that happened here. But our legacy is never again, you know, that, that that's what you see when you see a survivor. Know when you talk to a survivor that you just, it's going to feel different depending on the day, the moment, the hour. There are times when it's okay to talk about it. And there are times when you just think, it's so bad. What happened was so horrible. I can't always talk about it. So, you know, even after all these years, to be able to just have that understanding that to survive a mass shooting is horrific. And, but it's not, that's not the final word. That's not what I want to leave people with. Um, what I want to leave people with is just also the resilience that I work in these survivor communities. And, 
And there is also that insistence on a better world. And that brings goodness to people's lives. It's not the only thing in their life, right? This When all of us have beautiful, wonderful lives apart from working for gun violence prevention. But I guess as a survivor, I woke up this morning thinking, now what am I going to tell you? You know, there's always this, where's that balance between how horrible it was and how good and rich my life is? And I think for me, there are these, there's this sense of gratitude for the 16 years I did not lose, um, for these 16 wonderful years of being able to work as a nurse and as an educator and to see my daughters grown and to be with my family. And that is priceless. So to survive is to recognize everybody deserves that. No one deserves to be killed like this. Um, and we'll make it better which is what nurses do. We make it better. <laughs> we do. From the Daily Wildcat and Camp Student Radio, this has been Wildcat Crime. Thank you all for listening. Till next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wildcat Crime. If you liked it and want to hear more from us in the future, please make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Wildcat Crime Pod. Feel free to message us with questions, comments, or episode ideas. You can also reach us by emailing Vanessa O at dailywildcat.com. This episode was researched, written, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Vanessa Ontiveros. Copy edited by Corey Ryan Arnold. Content edited by Jasmine Demers. Recorded in Camp Studios. Our logo was designed by Nick Trujillo. Our music was Ghost Dance by Kevin MacLeod. Special thanks to everyone at Camp Student Radio. Special thanks to everyone at The Daily Wildcat. And a very special thanks to everyone who appeared on the podcast today. Eddie Salaya, Brett Farah, Ryan Gabrielson, James Kelly, Lisa Kaiser, and Martin Kraft. Once again, thank you for listening. This has been Wildcat Crime. Till next time. <laughs>